set it up here, you can. Mm -hmm. Now that Rob's here, we can start. <laughs> so, uh, we are in First Chronicles 22 tonight. Okay. We're in First Chronicles 22 tonight, and uh, our topic, our title, Imperishable Truth. Okay? When I say we're going to have a good evening, we're going to have a really good evening. Amen. Think back to a few of the things that you've learned, because we're not reviewing. But last week, you saw the man behind the curtain, the being or entity behind the curtain unveiled. You got to see where and how Satan functions in the Bible so that we can learn to take our stand against him. Tonight, we're going to create for you some very special anchor points that uh, I think you will never forget Amen. that will help you understand the Bible as a whole. They'll put your view of uh, the believer's future on concrete foundations. There'll be things that uh, are key building blocks. To do that, we have to cover some really large passages of Scripture that are going to be a joy, and we want it to be interactive. Uh, our hope is that you understand salvation better tonight. But you're also going to see themes of fathers and sons sprinkled through this because they're Bible themes, and they're everywhere. God always wanted us to work generationally. He always wanted relationships between pastors and congregants to be familial Hallelujah. relationships. Yes. Everything in the body of Christ is designed to work as a family. Amen. There's no such thing really as passive participants. There's no such thing really as distant memberships. We're either family or we're not. And that becomes very clear in the passages that we cover tonight. Is there a bold man or woman that will stand up and pray? Because just to be honest, I'm a little under the weather today and we could use your help. Mighty God, we thank you for tonight, Jesus, Lord. We thank you we can come into this house, Lord, and hear from the heavens. Lord, we, we are hungry for your word. Lord, would you give us revelation, Lord, as you've been pouring it out, Lord, for us to advance your kingdom. Lord, to take it back to Israel, because that's where it first came from to us, mighty God. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in this place, Lord. Anoint these men for the task at hand. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Mama, you're going to read the chapter for us? Woo. Come on, girl. Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to assemble the aliens living in Israel, and from among them he appointed stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for the building of the house of God. He provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways and for the fittings, and more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided more cedar logs than could be counted, mm. for the Sidonians and Tyrians had brought large numbers of them to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, 
I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. But this word of, of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be will be Solomon, and I will bring Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord will be with you, and may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God. And he said you would. May the Lord give you this, this discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be made, and wood and stone, and you may add to them. You have many workmen, stone cutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work. In gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord will be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. He said to them, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not granted you rest on every side? For he has handed the inhabitants of the land over to me, and the land is subject to the Lord and to his people. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Begin to build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the sacred articles belonging to God into the temple that will be built for the name of the Lord. Amen. In just a moment, our faithful reader of the scroll, Lentonius, is going to pick up in verse 1. I want to call to your mind, though, in chapter 16, we went over 14 examples where the Lord spoke about a place that he would choose. Let's read our first verse together, Justin. Then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Saints, thousands of years of expectation. Right here, right now, just like yeah, that. They find out yeah. where the temple of God is going to be. You would expect this to be a little more long and drawn out. Yeah. But the significance of this passage is something that is astounding and forever changes the way that God, that men would relate to God. Yeah. They now know where the temple is going to be built. This is a momentous event in Israel's history. This is the first time that we see the actual location of where the temple is going to be and will be in the future. We want to go through just a few of the things that helped David come to the conclusion that he did. It's put so plainly and so simply, but he has things that have caused him to be able to recognize the will of God. Do you want to recognize the will of God tonight? Yes. Yes. I hand out a couple passages and my brothers will tell you about them. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. Daniel, if you'll get that one. Caleb, if you'll get First Chronicles 21, 25 through 29. Then uh, Spencer, Genesis 22, 13 through 16. Go ahead and pick up when you got it. First Chronicles 17, 14. 11 through 14. 11 through 14. Yes, sir. 
declare, uh, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go up to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of, one of your own son, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. Come on. His throne will be established forever. Wow. Amen. Now the question is, is, is it's very plain in the text, but what? how did David come to the conclusion of this is the spot where the temple would be? I mean, did he roll the Urim and the Thummim and it said that's where it should be? <laughs> did he insult the Lord and the angel of the Lord when he put the sword back in the sheath? He wrote it in the sky? Good question. What happened? Yeah. The first thing we note here is that David was aware that his son would be the one to build the house for him. David knew that. David knew that it would not be him and that it would be his son is the person that would build the house that God required. What this was intended to do is it caused David to be looking for where the place would be. He knew it wasn't going to be him, but he was now looking for where God was going to establish his house and his throne. Saints, it's very hard to find something that you're not looking for. But when you have the realization that you need it, you start to see it. Can anybody in here relate to knowing that the Lord wants something done and having no idea how to start or where it's supposed to happen? Okay, well, put yourself in his shoes. And he knows that a son's going to do it, but that's about it at this moment. He's got 1 Chronicles 21, 25. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the name of the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Arnon, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. When you're hearing this passage, it's, it's something that we've covered quite a few times at this point. We did it in 2 Samuel. We've done it in Chronicles. But think about what's happening. On this very spot, the plague that was on God's people was stopped. Come on. Do you think that may have caught David's attention? Yeah. yeah. David is standing like a shepherd, and he requests in this spot that the blame rest on him and not the sheep. Do you think maybe something spiritual was happening to him at that moment? Yeah. By the direction of the prophet Gad, he chooses this spot to put an altar at. But where did Gad get the instruction? From the angel of the Lord who is standing in this spot. Now, to cap it all off in case there were any more doubts, what happened to the offering that he put on the altar? Fire from heaven fell on it. Look, when we talk about charismatic confirmation, if a prophet shows up and you can see the angel of the Lord and the uh, plague on the people all stop, 
all in one spot, and then fire comes from heaven and consumes an offering, well, then we'll call it beyond contestation. Until then, it's worth debating, right? This was starting to get his attention, but that's not even the best part. What is far more interesting than that is that a thousand years have passed since another event in the same spot, and it was a father of David, a forefather of David. Genesis 22. Mm. Wow. Yeah, 22:13. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Hallelujah. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven to a, se a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, and because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the, sky, as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. That's great. So this is a familiar passage. This is one of those things that we've all been in church a long time hearing sermons about and how it's a shadow and type of Christ. Pick up on this for a minute. Who is speaking to Abraham? Not an angel, the angel of the Lord. You're gonna, are you starting to see a similarity here? Yeah. We have Abraham, David's forefather, who's standing with a sacrifice that he is ready to make to preserve God's people, to do what the Lord has spoken. And then the angel of the Lord speaks to it, and something changes. More than that, we're in a similar deadly situation here. Remember, when the angel of the Lord is standing over Aruna's threshing floor, he's not holding a bouquet. He's not holding a Bible. He's holding a sword that is drawn that is over the sons of Abraham. Well, what is pictured here in Genesis 22? Abraham is standing here with a knife over his son. And then the angel of the Lord spoke just before devastation hit. Same angel, same situation. Same angel, same situation, and on the same mountain. Since this picture was set up in advance, and David is beginning to connect the dots himself, there's a prophetic message that is in this passage. On this mountain, the Lord will provide. Saints, can I tell you how much we need to recognize that from a theological standpoint and a practical standpoint? God knew where his presence was going to dwell with man forever. And it was at the very same spot that Abraham showed the faith to be able to do when everything inside of him was screaming not to, because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. No doubt David understood that these things were a prophetic message and that the angel of the Lord was directing him to Arona's threshing floor. Nice. Now, come on. My father just mentioned it a moment ago. The kind of things that we believe for confirmation is one thing. Yeah. When fire from heaven falls with the angel of the Lord standing next to you in the same situation that happened with Abraham on the same mountain after having a prophet come speak to you to go there. He was beginning to see the heavenly pattern that was laid out in the Torah. It's amazing how many times this happens. We covered just 14 instances where it said where his name will dwell, when he reveals it to his people, when, when, when. There was an expectation that all of Israel had. Then in one simple verse, you see David, David recognizes it and commissions the work. You, you know what else is fun? The more you compare the chapters, how, how many days of plague were there? Three. Three. 
<laughs> After three days, Abraham looks up and in the distance sees Moriah. I mean, there's so many parallels to be discovered in these passages to think that you now know what David had to read to gain insight into. We're learning how to unlock revelation. They got it the same way that we do. Diligently studying the word and lots of help from the heavenly realm. Come on. What else is prophesied here, Justin? In verse 17 and 18, we see further prophecy. Spence, if you could read that. Yes. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, come on, put this picture together. The same angel of the Lord that spoke to David is now speaking to Abraham. The same deadly situation for Abraham's descendants and David's descendants is happening here. And immediately after Abraham gets victory, the angel starts to speak a prophetic message. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. What would that be saying to David? That would be saying to David that this is the spot where God is going to do that. This is the spot that God is going to bless your descendants and make them as numerous as the stars in the sky. He would remember when he is picking that spot. He would remember that it was spoken that the people of Israel would possess the gates of their enemies and through them the earth would be blessed. This would be telling David that he has to build the place where God says, I will plant my people forever and enemies will never overcome them again. Hallelujah. David had that in mind. So as we move forward, remember this. As we move forward, we're going to paint a picture with these themes. Let's read verse 2 as we get back into our text. So David gave orders to assemble the aliens living in Israel. And from among them, he appointed stone cutters to prepare great stones for the building of the house of God. It's not nice to call them aliens. These are undocumented inhabitants. <laughs> when you're thinking about the events that have just transpired, remember that it's as soon as the sacrifices are accepted on behalf of Israel, that it's as soon as David pays the full price on Moriah, it's as soon as the plague has been stopped and fire has fallen from heaven. Hey, think through that. Sacrifice. And then fire falling from heaven. Oh, come on. Does anybody hear crucifixion? Pentecost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that sets up a type for us. And although David could not build the temple himself, what you start to see is nothing stops him from preparing the way for that temple to be built. Yeah. God lays out his plan clearly throughout his word. It's going to happen. David understood this, and it's why he begins to make preparations. To really get at this, there's something else we need to show you in verse 2. Alright, saints, can you see this slide? Yes. yes. And David ordered to gather the strangers who were <laughs> in the land of Israel and yeah. stationed hewers who hew rock stone to build the house of God. Saints, you remember in Genesis 22, after we have a sacrifice that God intervened supernaturally, it says you will possess the gates of your enemies, their yeah. cities, and all nations will be blessed through you. Uh -huh. Well, in first, Second Chronicles 2, 1, when Solomon is actually putting these men to work, which are foreigners, goyim, Gentiles, yeah. can anybody guess how many there are? 70,000. 
who came to work on the temple of God in a house in Israel. They are coming to a Jewish king and they are participating in the work. Saints, out of the things that we've discussed, this should be calling to mind lots of teaching. But this is our opportunity to participate in the work of God. Amen. You see this in David. After fire fell from heaven, David appoints 70,000 Gentiles to begin making the preparations. And the very first thing that he did, crucifixion, Pentecost, Gentiles. As many of you now understand, 70 is a significant number. I want to remind you of just a few areas, though. 70 nations from the sons of Noah. <laughs> 70 belligerent Benai Ha Elohim that led those nations astray. We have 70 lamps, 70 bulls, 70 disciples sent out to reclaim the nations. All of this is painting a picture. But in the Davidic king, we have them coming in to participate in the work. The promise to Abraham and David always was and still is that the nations would be blessed through them. Yeah. Abraham would go into, grow into the great nation that became Israel. And David would gain followers from the nations through warfare. Saints, think about men like Ittai the Gittite. Oh, yeah. He didn't meet Ittai the Gittite just by hiding in his own house. He met him through his campaigns. And Ittai recognized, hey, I'm a Goyim, but I want to be with that king. Yeah. Now yeah. men are being commissioned to work on the temple. Through David and his son, we begin to see the redemption of the nations that was promised to Abraham all of that time ago. If you remember, how many Israelites died in 1 Chronicles 21? Anybody remember? In the three days of plague. Wow, that's an interesting number. Yes. Justin, why don't you tell us about those 70,000? Well, you know, 70,000 Israelites died in the plague. David conscripts or appoints 70,000 Gentiles to start work on the temple. You know what that reminds me of? I think if you have eyes to see, you might notice that branches were broken off and others grafted in to the work. You know, Romans 11 speaks about Gentiles being able to take part in the riches of God's inheritance because of loss in Israel. Because of the loss that happened in Israel, Gentiles get to take part in the riches of working for the building of God. But it's always been throughout the heavenly and earthly battle, many Israelites have been slain while men like Ittai the Gittite join the ranks. Come on, that's us. Come on. While many Israelites are having trouble, there is a stumbling stone that they're stumbling over. We get to be included during that period. Amen. But these Graftons are helping to build God's house, helping to build God's house, which will result in glory when it is completed and all Israel is included. We get to build it and they will come to it with us. That's glorious. That reminds me of 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. If you read that, Pastor. Oh, I get it. As you come to him, 1 Peter 2. Four through six. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, we all recognize the living stone as Jesus. But before the living stone was Jesus, 
The living stone was David, the stone the builders rejected. Yeah. Okay? Jesus is the son of David. They're, a pattern was started, and Jesus brings it to completion, but it was started in David. Yeah. David was initially rejected by men, but was chosen by God. Yeah. So we come to Jesus through warfare with the prince and powers of this world. And in him, we find victory, hope, and deliverance. Amen. This makes us very much like David's men that came to him through Adullam and the spoils of war. Yeah. It's the same kind of picture that is being painted. Just as these men were appointed to be stone cutters, maybe a Gibeonite here or there, Mr. Lohan, yeah. we're appointed to come in as assignments within the building. We, we become a part of the house. Amen. That doesn't make it a non-Israeli house. Got that right. We come to be a part of it. Amen. That doesn't make David or Jesus something other than the king of the Jews. We come to be a part of their house, Amen. like adoptees. As we build, we are built together with his people to be a place where his presence might dwell. Amen. Now, we said Israel experienced loss. We didn't say Israel was lost. Yeah. Yeah. See, the nation was under threat. And people died. The very next chapter, people are brought in from the other nations to do work in the same number as the missing Israelites. There was a relationship. But that didn't make Israel a Gentile nation or change the identity of the house. It's important for you to line up these events. A sacrifice on Moriah. Fire falling on Moriah. This is just like crucifixion in Pentecost. Immediately after the beginning of the building of God's house, through conscripting the nations to be a part of it. Amen. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? Let's, let's pick up in verse 3. He provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways and for the pits, and more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided more cedar logs than could be counted, for the Sidonians and Syrians had brought large numbers of them today. All right, saints, you can see useless materials here that is just like mantra, but... Uh, I'm a contractor, so I pay attention to material expenses. Uh, Got to make sure everybody keeps their receipts, turns them back in. Saints, these materials didn't appear out of thin air. No. They had to be claimed. I'm going to hand out a passage, and I'm going to read one. So who wants to take 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 for me? Hayes, you get it. I'm going to read to you out of 1 Chronicles 18. We're going to pick up in verse 7 and read through 11. This is on the topic of grafted workers that have been provided because of David's conquest in the land, his interaction in the land, and the materials that he gained from victory over his enemies. So saints, I'm picking up in 1 Chronicles 18, 7. David took the gold shields carried by the officers of Hadezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem from Tibba and Kun, towns that belonged to Hadezer. David took a great quantity, somebody say great quantity, great, great quantity, of bronze, which Solomon used to make the bronze sea, the pillars and various bronze articles. We're going to keep going in the passage, but notice here, these guys did not willingly give up great quantities of bronze. We're speaking about an ancient world where you have to mine this stuff with a pickaxe out of a mountain. It wasn't easy to come by. It wasn't sitting in a scrap pile. He fought, claimed it, and the text wants you to know what happens with it later. 
It's not just in the temple. It was the bronze sea and the pillars. Yeah. So when you look at it, you should see the defeated enemies that David put down. Oh. Verse 9. When Tohu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadezer, king of Zobah, wisely, he sent his son, Hadaram, to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadezer, who had been at war with Tohu. Hadaram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold he had taken from all these nations. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek. You guys remember the wine press? Each of these nations are where he took these articles. Out of the nations that were dedicated to destruction, that were prophesied about being crushed and he fulfilled it. David took their possessions and dedicated them to the temple of the Lord. He didn't get a new yacht. He didn't get a bigger house. He took them and provided for what was coming. Their possessions were dedicated to Yahweh's use. Saints, this is yet another way that he is demonstrating our God is superior to Dagon. It is superior to Molech. Not only is Yahweh's king crushing them, He's taking their stuff and building his house with it. He's making his chair. He's making his flooring out of their possessions. So that every time an Israelite walked into the temple, they would know that their God had been victorious over every other enemy. That David had taken it from them because Yahweh was with him. All of this came through the shedding of blood. Somebody say blood. Blood. Warfare is not a bloodless process. This was a violent interaction. You know what this makes you? Spoils of war. Yeah. So let's just suppose for a minute, Marlon, as handsome as he is, made a living as a nightclub singer, right? But then he had a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ who ripped him away from those demonic entities, brought him into his kingdom, and is now forming and fashioning him like recycling into something fit for God's temple in use. Did you notice that it was a great quantity of bronze? Yeah. And what did they make with it? The sea. Did you know that the sea has no description as far as its size in the Bible? It's funny that we don't know how much bronze it took because we don't know how big it was. Because the very thing that is supposed to symbolize you cleaning your life up, God put no limit on how big it would be. Because... We knew that he could do it, but you didn't know how much it was going to take, okay? This imagery is so strong that the New Testament writers seem to take it for granted that we understand it. That's why we're going back through it some. Thank you, Hebrews. On that topic, we are used to looking at how it redeems us. You need to picture when you're reading about the tabernacle, when you're praying through the tabernacle, how God got it, how he obtained it. It was through his hands and feet upon the earth. Saints, David was not going to pick up a hammer. He was not going to pick up a screwdriver. But what he would do is by the sword, by God's direction against enemies that he had spoken about being destroyed, provide servants and Gentiles that would come in and materials that would build the temple. Saints, some of you are Acts class students in here, some of you are not. But the term hermeneutics has to do with a symbol, a type, something in the Bible that you begin to see a picture of what it represents the more that you look at it. When you hear the word bronze, you need to think about the word judgment. 
more so great quantity of bronze, a great quantity of judgment. Iron represents great strength in the Bible. Gold represents divinity and silver redemption. These are the things that David provided for the temple. Something of great judgment, great strength, great divinity, and great redemption. Amen. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Man, I love the fact that the temple was like a giant trophy room that God had. Yeah. You ever walk into someone's house and they have this huge trophy room from hunting? Yeah. yeah. God's temple was like a giant trophy room. The only guy from Port Arthur says, yeah. <laughs> Save from among hillbillies. God's temple was like a giant trophy room of those that he has hunted down. Foreign gods and foreign powers that were trying to enslave the nation. The nations. And that temple stood for the redemption of all the nations. So think about that for a second. When God builds this temple, he puts everything in it that shows his dominance over the gods. And then when you walk through the temple, it's showing you how he's going to redeem you and place you on top of them. Come on. Now, let's read 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 again, because I don't think you got it. His divine power has given us everything we need. The materials, the building blocks. The tools to work with. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in what? The divine nature. Come on. Through them he's given you the opportunity to participate in his Dominance over those foreign gods to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, the Rephaim, Satan, and all of his minions. That's good. He has given his people everything they need to show your dominance over yeah. those spiritual powers. Yeah. Man, thank God. The son of David has given us everything we need and we don't lack anything, right? We lack nothing, right? I mean... We don't lack anything. We don't need to <laughs> repent sometimes of selfishness and idolatry. We must do the work. Come on. Even though we have everything we need, we must do the work to show God's redemption and dominance over the powers. Amen. Not excuse the work when it gets too hard. Yeah. Are y'all ready to get pastoral for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use the next couple verses as an excuse to get very pastoral. So let's uh <laughs> let's pick up in verse five. <laughs> My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made an extensive made extensive preparations before his death. Okay. Now I want you to picture for a minute that. Uh, I'll make it easy for you. That Baj has walked up to you. And he says, hey, my son, you are young and inexperienced. What's your very first feeling? Don't lie to me. Inadequacy. Inadequacy, anger, uh, insulted. 
To a modern reader, when we hear my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, none of us ever want to need to grow in an area. None of us ever want to be uh, put in a position where it seems as if we don't measure up. The terrible part about that is you have to live in a deception that pretends to be perfect and hates anything that shows that you're not perfect. Yeah. Okay, I want to highlight this for you. This is not only not insulting, it's, it's very fatherly. This is a proper assessment of Solomon's actual state. Amen. Okay, What's better about it is he presents a solution. Now. We cannot get upset with people that show us our actual state. Mm -hmm. You don't have to agree with them, but you do have to consider it. Yeah. You know, is there anything wrong with being young and inexperienced? No. You know what would have been worse? If he said, hey, Solomon, you're 50 years old and you're still inexperienced. Yeah. I see that all of the time. Some of the worst Christians I've ever met have been in the church the longest, but they failed to grasp any of the concepts and they believe that their age gives them some kind of tenure. It doesn't. It, it never will. We need to understand something. This is very a father speaking to a son. And when he says you're young and inexperienced, what was the father's reaction then? I'm going to make preparation. I'm going to help you. Amen. I want you to understand in this house, if you are ever left for a moment feeling inadequate, that shouldn't be an insult. That shouldn't be a slight. That should be an attempt for us to help you become completed. Can I tell you, any one of us that are reaching for higher and higher things are inadequate every day. In fact, what maturity looks like is recognizing your inadequacy in searching for the Father's solution. That's the point. So many of us can't handle this kind of assessment in our lives. So we bounce to the next place. We gain favor in the next place by telling them how bad the last place was. It's a conclave of carnality. And uh, we're all guilty of it. Nobody likes it when somebody... Look, here's what insulting is. Insulting is when somebody walks up and says something to you that you cannot do anything about and that can't change. You know, I hate you because you're white. That's insulting. I hate you because you're black. That's, that's insulting. You know what is not insulting? Say, hey, bro, you, you got some, uh, some gradu on your face. <laughs> now, you might not want to hear it, but there is a solution. It can be changed. Yep. Yep. What David is doing is helping his son. Now, this theme is going to go through this chapter, and we don't want to give it all the way now, but I do think that we should put it in its Newer Testament light. Is that okay? okay. Would somebody like to read? Yeah. Yes. Hey, I, I, why don't you read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16? <laughs> y'all yeah, yeah, hand them out. All right, get your hands up. We're gonna hand out a few more. Rob, you get 2 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10. Cho, you're going to read Hebrews 12, 7. Gabriel Arias, you're going to read John 15 and verse 2. Ooh, that's nice. Good. And then we'll go from there. Go ahead. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, 
and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Now let's, let's pause for a minute. We are going to finish that, so keep your finger right there. Okay. <laughs> you have to be prepared. Yeah. So ask yourself, when were you prepared? How did you get prepared? Did it take you longer to get prepared for the eternal work of God than it did to become an engineer? Wow. This is what real discipleship is. It's preparation. Now, what about this phrase, may be built up? This is oikaranome. This is one brick being put on top of another brick so that you rise to become more than you are. You know, you cannot build somebody up that you cannot point and go, Dude, you need a brick right there. Take the one out from between your ears <laughs> and put it right there. <laughs> so the thing is, is we don't want to be prepared. We, we want to have already been prepared. Wow. Yeah. That's why we've so simplified yeah. the gospel as to make it not a gospel at all. Wow. It's, it's, it's a nursery rhyme for children. But if you believe that we're engaged in actual battles with at least four levels of principalities and that the five-fold ministry itself is a gift like what God did when he attacked Bashan from Sinai. Amen. And he took dominance and he took captives and then he came back and he gives gifts. Men who know how to do that. Well, then you would be like Solomon looking at David. <coughs> Remember something. Solomon's called to build the temple. Who's not allowed to? David. Who is calling Solomon? Young and inexperienced. David. A man who would never build the temple. But God still used him wow. to help his son excel out. past him. Yeah. See, this is, you say, well, hey, man, you're telling me what I'm supposed to do in that country. You've never been to that country. Keep thinking like that. Wow. Okay. This is the role of the pastor. Have you ever noticed that some of the greatest coaches in history we're not the greatest players in history. Yeah, yeah, sure. How is it we got an old, decrepit white guy coaching in the NBA? How does that happen? <laughs> Think through this. Okay? The point here is you need familial figures in your life that show you where there are gaps in your life so that you can be built to become more then you are. Yeah. And the, the, the proof that nobody, not me, not Judah, not you, are excused from this is we are not yet mature by biblical standards and completely unified in the faith. Wow. There's still factions in this room. Wow. We've got some growing up to do. Come on. Pastors, shepherds, fathers in the faith are given to prepare sons and build them up. Our biggest problems in ministry come from those that cannot see us like fathers, and they do not think that they are sons. And, and it's okay. We don't want to assume that in anybody's life. But I can tell you it's far easier to teach somebody that sees themselves as a son of this house. Far easier. It, it's so bad that it's a little bit of a labor for us, and we have to work hard to go, okay, you're going to spit on me the entire time I'm cleaning you. But I'm going to do it anyway because I love Jesus that much. Come on. You know who doesn't do that? Sons. They don't do it. There's a built-in relationship. Okay? We want to encourage everybody to dig deeply into this contest, this, this thought, this concept. 
Maturity is attained from honest, somebody say honest, honest. assessment. See, you need to be honestly assessed. You need the insight of others. Do you know the more authority that you're given? I have more than I ever wanted. I, I, I just wanted to be a history teacher. I mean, I wanted to do as little as possible. And I didn't care how little I got paid for it. I wanted to wear the fat coaching shorts, teach history, work about 180 days a year. That's all I wanted to do. And the more authority that I've been given, the more I am looking for and grabbing hold of anybody who has the courage to give me an honest assessment. Amen. I don't always take it well. You don't always take it well. But we have to grow up. We, we, we have to. And when something really upsets you, it's probably because the assessment was closer to the truth than you would like. Hey, we probably ought to finish this passage, though. Let's, let's pick up in verse 14. I told you I was going to use it as an Wait till we go further. In a little while, I'm going to completely abandon Chronicles to tell you about something that I just want to tell you about. For, for no other reason than that. But it will help you understand Chronicles. Verse 14. <laughs> then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Come on, that's not a pretty picture, but it is the truth. Infants. Don't hold to, to the things we say the Lord has said. We're easily impressed with new fads. We're always looking for something new that makes us feel valid. Solomon didn't get to, to go pick 15 other building projects as warm-ups. He didn't get to pick one to build his confidence. He had, he had a task in life. His father knew that he couldn't do it. Without the Lord's help, and you're going to find out tonight, his father outlines everything for him to help him. Amen. Okay, that, that was a great gift. Verse 15. Amen. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Shut up, that sounds like an assessment. Wow. <laughs> yeah? That's a good word. <laughs> hey, you young men that don't know how to dress and sometimes have poor hygiene, have you ever been blessed by a young lady telling you, hey, dude, that shirt, that, that's the one that you want to wear. The other things you're wearing, don't, don't wear that. It doesn't feel good to hear it until you attract a spouse and you actually get married. It's better than eating hot pockets and sitting in your living room all day. Okay? You need an honest assessment. Ladies, if you're going to ask, do I look fat in this jeans? Be prepared for an honest assessment. We need to speak the truth in love. Because the only thing worse then looking fat in your jeans is having your husband have lied to you and told you you look good while everybody in the room knows you look fat in the jeans. We need an honest assessment, people. Good word. Hey, why don't we read 15 again? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in the hem who is the head. You know what's great about being young and inexperienced? You're going to gain more experience every day, and there's nowhere to go but grow up. Yeah. Yeah. This is a sign of maturity when you're, when you're able to grow up because you can go, hey, that, that, uh, thank you so much for punching me in the face over that. I was wrong. Like, I didn't know. Now I do. 
I just want to hug you. I want to thank you. Uh, let's put some oil on your head for loving me enough to give me an assessment. But I got to tell you, I've been in ministry 30 years. Usually, if you give somebody an honest assessment, what you're going to get is slandered, devalued. They're going to run off and build a city with other people that also couldn't handle an honest assessment. And they will all try to make themselves feel better by tearing you down. I love this group and we're a family. I, I, when, I want you to give me an honest assessment. Don't walk up and say, yeah, pastor, that was a good message when it sucked. Don't do that. The, we need an honest assessment. Okay, we, we need that. I guess uh, verse 16 would be good now. <laughs> From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Come on, we're going to grow together. Yeah. Yeah. We are. I, almost everything that this pastor knows, we know because we did it before you and we did it wrong. Yeah. I mean, that, that really is it. Uh, very often after messages, people are like, dude, you're talking about me. I'm always going to tell you, yeah, I was talking about you. It's seldom true. I'm usually talking about me. Every example from the other day, preaching, every single one was an error from my own life. Okay? Youth and inexperience, or just inexperience at any age. It, it produces bad things, and you want people that can see what you can't see. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Y'all want that? Yes. Okay, we're going to return to our study now. Who's got 2 Corinthians 3? I do. 2 Corinthians 3. Read just 9 for me, and then we'll pick up with 10. 13 or 3? 13. Okay. Verse 9. 13, 9. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are so strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. Saints, it depends what translation you're reading here. But we are speaking about a father looking at his disciples and his children. I am glad when I am weak and you are strong. My prayer is that you would be perfected. Amen. Saints, this is what ministry looks like. Yeah. If you have been sitting across the table with one of the three of us or one of our wives working through your personal sin problem or your continued marriage issue, it's because it's been done for us. And the person doing it doesn't feel particularly strengthened by walking you through your sin. They're doing it because they want you to be perfected. We need to grow in an appreciation for what we have here. It is not a common thing. When you go to churches all over the place, you can sit there over and over and over again. And not only does the pastor not know your name, he doesn't give a damn about your spiritual state. He's not going to sit, take the time to sit with you. If you put money in the plate, that's all he cares about. Get verse 10 for me. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Saints, a father's assessment is for the purpose of you being built into the house that you were called to be. You, your wife, your children, everyone succeeding in what they were called to. Hiding from it and resenting it, cut the process off. But let's just simply say it, moving from here, it is a sacrifice when someone does that for you. Yeah. Return it with oil and learn to look for it so that you may be built up. Sure. In all reality, it should be a selfish motivator on your end. I want to grow. So I'm going to respond this way. Yeah. The truth is, it is a sacrifice, and we have to learn to obtain that. Yeah. David does it for Solomon, and there's a solution that helps it. Who's got Hebrews 12, 7? If your heart should have discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? 
I love how plain that says that. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father? Just honestly, plain speech, if you're being disciplined, then what else do you expect? If you treat the men and women in your lives that are discipling you as fathers in the faith, then what else do you expect? Do you expect them not to discipline you? I mean, honestly, this is what happens when we get disciplined. Think about what David did for Solomon here. He gave him honest assessment about his life, and then he prepared the way. He made extensive preparations for his son. You know what happens whenever you don't view your disciples as fathers in the faith? You view those extensive preparations as actually slight on your character. Oh, yeah. You start saying things like, no, I don't need your preparation. No, I can do this myself. I don't want the extensive preparations. Until you do. Until you find yourself going out on your own, falling flat on your face, and then you wish you would have taken the extensive preparations. This is, Hebrews puts it so plain because it's what to be expected. When you are looking at these men as fathers in the faith, that's what you should expect. That's what fathers do. Who's got John 15, 2 through 3? Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. But he proves every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, listen to this. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, it's gone. Yeah. It's not even here. Every branch that does not bear fruit is not even in the room, not even included. Mm-hmm. But every branch that does show some level of fruit is constantly assessed to make it more fruitful. So if you're if you're bearing fruit, if you're bearing some level of fruit, and then you start to experience a pruning, you don't look back and go, hey, what the heck? I'm I'm being fruitful, aren't I? Why is this happening to me? Why do I need to be pruned? Wow. He does that so you can be more fruitful. Amen. Perhaps the father sees areas in your just perhaps the father sees areas in your life. Where he's, he's looking and he's saying, look, you are bearing fruit and I'm proud. But you want to know how to be more fruitful? I can show you. Yeah. This is not to destroy it, although it sometimes feels like you're being destroyed, right? Yeah. This is not to destroy you. This is what the good father wants to do. What good father would destroy you? He wants you to be more fruitful. Yeah. Fathers invest in the sons that are fruitful and prepares ways for them to be even more fruitful. That's wow. what David did. Amen. He made honest assessment, and he also made extensive preparations for his son Solomon. As we return to verse 6, I want to drive home something that I hope you're not missing. David calls Solomon young and inexperienced. Solomon could have turned and said, you know what? Well, God wasn't going to let you do this anyway. Then neither one of them would have been able to do it. David could not do the task. His job was to help the man who was designed to do the task. And he wanted to help him. That wasn't an insult. He properly assessed him. And then the solution was that the father helped the son. You're going to see these roles reverse here in a minute with another assessment. That's, that's where, where we're going because nobody, it's fathers get assessed too. <laughs> Say that with me. Fathers, fathers get assessed too. Okay. This has nothing to do with lifting up some kind of great person who's done everything you hope to do. Now, God will very often use Ananias to come and help Paul, even though Ananias will never do the things that Paul goes to do. Wow. But Paul couldn't do them without Ananias. Yeah. 
be very careful downgrading those who give you an assessment. Oh Let's pick up in verse 6. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. We have a lot to unpack in that. But while we're on this same theme, just as David, who was a loving father, assessed Shlomo, his son, and then he provided a solution for him, the Lord is now assessing David. The Lord is the loving father, and David is the son, and he's providing a solution. In the first scenario, when the son, Solomon, is assessed by his father, David, the father was the solution. In this second scenario, the father is being assessed and the son is the solution. See, we need each other. Yeah. You, you could probably add to the phrase on that wall, I need my brothers and my brothers need me. You could probably include the phrase, I need my fathers and my fathers need me. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I want to read to you Proverbs 17, 5, and then uh, Judah's going to pick up from there. <laughs> Proverbs 17, 5 says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Saints, there's an inseparable tie between sons and fathers that is more than just genetic progenitory, but is a relationship that comes out of the word and is part of God's design. Fathers that work are dependent upon their sons. It's a symbiotic, reciprocal, interdependent relationship. The glory that we have is our fathers, those that have gone before us. Baj is glory to me. I've been adopted by him. Amen. My father is glory to me. Hallelujah. And their crown is what we do with our lives. Right. Now, those are marital relationships and blood relationships. But we have fathers and sons in this room that your glory are the men that are poured into you. And their crown is what you do with their, yes. your life. Yeah. Saints, we have something that is precious. It's yeah. not just nominal. We have something that is unique in all of the world, an actual family. Yeah. It is not based upon where we grew up. It's not based upon what country we were born in. Yeah. We are in a family that gives us a kind of glory that nobody can buy or take from yeah. us. Yeah. It's unique and it's supernatural. Uh, Let me illustrate that for you in this room. I was 18 years old when I got born again. And the most normal, steadfast, spiritual couple that I knew was Charlie and Joellen Brown. They became to me parents. I played Bible trivia with them, Pictionary with them. I drove to their house just to eat pot roast because it was that good. <laughs> they corrected me. They encouraged me. They assessed me. I, I built almost everything in this room, but I didn't know how to use a skill saw when I met Charlie, okay? He is a glory to me. Did, does that make sense? Yeah. We were not blood related. There's no reason for him to like me. Like, I, I've known Caleb since he's running around in his underwear, and now it is my glory to help Caleb. Come on. Yeah. That's how this works. Now, the thing is, is 
That's not because Charlie went to 50 nations and started works everywhere. It's because he mastered the basics of the faith. And he still reminds me of them regularly. That's important. We need that. You know what? I trust his assessment. I, I, I trust it. I especially trust it when it's not favorable. Okay? You get people who are all telling you how wonderful you are, you will love the person that tells you when your fly is down. And you will start to really not appreciate when somebody wouldn't do that. Okay? To illustrate this point for, further, let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17. Who's got that? Do we hand it out? No. All right, Rick's got it. Well, this is good. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Okay, wow. so hold right there. This doesn't just talk about biological son and father relationships. Right. Right. This includes, through the gospel, men and women in your life that are preparing you to do what you need to do. This is our spiritual fathers. Okay, go on. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant, and though... You got it. <laughs> so here we have Timothy, a spiritual son of Paul. Paul is his father through the gospel. Timothy is Paul's glory. Okay, and Paul is Timothy's glory. Without Paul, Timothy would not know what to do at all. He could run, but he wouldn't run with knowledge. And without Timothy, Paul could not achieve what he needed to do right in here. the Corinthian church wow. because he was sending his son. Come on, right. you know, Rick read the passage. Rick became one of my spiritual fathers yeah. when I first got born again. I had not a clue how to live a godly life. I had not a clue how to show up with my boots on ready for work. I had not a clue how to wake up and be there on time. Rick, now we're talking building symbology here. Rick was over me, showing me the plans, and Rick needed me to climb up in the attic to do the work. Do you see the symbiotic relationship there? Without David, Solomon can't do anything. And without Solomon, David's promise falls flat right there. They need each other. There always has to be someone overseeing and showing, giving direction. And there has to be a young son with all the strength and vigor to rise up and do what his son, his father can't do any longer. Amen. That is the relationship. What Justin has said is so good. Yeah. But don't fall into a trap by thinking this has anything to do with age. It, it, it has nothing to do with, with age. Are you telling me that Paul is older than every person in the Corinthian church who he claims to have fathered? No. no, no, no. Of course not. This is carnal thinking. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you, I will need my son's influence in my life as directors, encouragers, more as I get older, not less. I mean, anybody that hasn't noticed that is ignorant about the cycle of life. At some point, I will need their help for basic daily living. It's got nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with God-ordained relationships. Amen. When I was in my 20s, every time pastoring, when talking with somebody who was older, they're like, but you're younger than my children. 
like, and you're stupider than my parents, but what do you want me to do? <laughs> if you let age get in the way of this, you will miss out on what you're supposed to do. The only thing worse than being young and inexperienced is being old and inexperienced. Listen, we can live with, with one or the other, but let's, let's grow up. Amen? Hey, what's verse 8? Read 8 and 9 again for us, brother. But this, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed blood, much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace quiet during his reign. The, the, the almost universally accepted uh, thought on this, and you'll be surprised, we, we do not agree with it, <laughs> what? is that something about David's bloodshed makes him deficient, makes him uh, morally suspect. Well, that flies in the face of the entire rest of the biblical account. So I think we need to, to seek to understand this verse better. And uh, Judah's going to help the process of putting it on better footing. I want to assure you David is not morally deficient. Amen. Gabriel, get Hebrews 11, 32 through 34 for me. Then... Uh, Bajidar, would you mind getting 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3? Nick Aragina, would you get 1 Chronicles? Actually, we'll stop there for now. Okay, get to Hebrews when you get there. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Wow. Gideon, Brock, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Saints, how many people did Gideon kill? Can you even put a number on it? No. How many people, how many Canaanites did Barak kill? So many. An awful lot. <laughs> how many Philistines did Samson kill? Oh. Not enough! <laughs> <laughs> In his death alone, he killed more than the entire time that he was alive. Wow. How many Ammonites did Jephthah kill? Yeah. Yet again, you can't even put a number on it. How many prophets did Elijah kill? You can put a number on that one, but it's still massive. Saints, everyone that is listed in the Hebrews Hall of Fame has, by God's direction, engaged in warfare. Hey, by the way, does anybody remember how the Levites got their priesthood? It wasn't by reading the Tanakh. It was by picking up a sword when Moses called out the will of God. It would be more appropriate to recognize David's God-directed warfare as righteous in the statements made by God about him to refer to his function. One point before we transition. What does David mean? Beloved. Beloved. What was it that God spoke about Solomon? That he would be like Jedediah, one who is loved to the Lord. Keep that in mind as we continue. 
Who's got First Chronicles 28.3? I do. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, here God, I mean, it says, You have shed blood. But there's something else here in that passage that's very interesting. He says, Because you are a warrior. Yeah. You are a warrior. See, that speaks a little bit more to the function of David rather than what he's done in the past. Yeah. In the, the present the statement, what God is saying about him is you are a warrior and that is your function. He's good at his job. David's function was a shepherd king whose character was marked by extraordinary sacrifice and redemption from sin. But first and foremost, David is a warrior. Yeah. I mean, he was so good at it. People warned against going to war against him because, you know, he's been a warrior from his youth. He's right. kind of uh, terrifying to fight against, if you will. Songs about it. <laughs> this should be seen in function. Think about the function of David here. The function of a warrior, shepherd, king. This should be seen as relating to Jesus from the cross until he treads out the winepress of God's wrath yeah. at the establishment of his kingdom. Come on. We see king. Jesus typified here in David as a shepherd warrior king who is going to tread out the winepress of God's wrath. Spatter, you know, if David is deficient for shedding blood, then wouldn't you think Jesus would be deficient because his garments are going to be stained with blood as well? Uh, yeah, something's not right with that view entirely. Yeah. yeah. This point becomes obvious as we survey 2 Samuel chapters 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to outline it quickly. We see a progression through these chapters. In 2 Samuel 6, David brings the ark into a tent. In 2 Samuel 7, David receives the promise of a dynasty that his son would build the temple. In 2 Samuel 8, David sets out to defeat every geographical enemy of Israel. So you follow in this? Immediately after, David gets the promise of a dynasty and that his son would build the temple, he goes to war. Yeah. He goes to war immediately Come after on. he hears That's that promise. And if you look closely at 1 Chronicles, it follows that progression just the same. Immediately after he gets his promise, he does what? Goes, goes to, to war. war. Yeah. So then, David is the warrior king who typifies Christ from the cross to the wine press. Now let's look at the function, because we're talking about function here, right? Right. Let's look at the function of his son, Shlomo, which is a derivative of the word Shalom, yeah, the son of David. Judas, or Elder Eric, is going to read us 1 Chronicles 22.9. Amen. Y'all want to hear about Shlomo? Yeah. yeah. You kind of have David's function down in the way that he and Jesus relate? Yes. We want to show you that with Solomon. 1 Chronicles 22.9. But you have, you will have a son who will be a man of peace. peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Shlomo. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. Solomon's reign would be characterized by rest from his enemies on every side. Mm -hmm. This corresponds to the establishment of the kingdom after the battle with all of the nations. Come on. In other words, Shlomo represents everything after the second coming of Jesus. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. 
It's not that David is deficient. He has a part to play. Yes. He is to typify Jesus from the cross to the wine press. <laughs> Shlomo nice. picks up after that when all of the enemies are put underfoot. Amen. Both men are Davidic. Both men represent Jesus. And no one of them represents him perfectly. It takes more than one. Which is why we need each other. Now, are you ready for, for something really good? Absolutely. Are you sure? Yes. Brandon, read to us 1 Kings 5, 1 through 5. Is this picture getting a little clear? Oh, yeah. We have a warrior king that from the crucifixion to the wine press represents God's plan. And then a son of David would reign in peace. Saints, they had different jobs to do. And they were both very good at their job. David's job was to win the war, and he did it. He went everywhere. He crushed everything. He showed Yahweh's dominance over the other nations and their gods. By the way, while we're on this point, it's worth noting, we often have a picture of the first coming of Christ that is missing the kind of warfare that David has. When you think about the crucifixion in light of what you now know, this is him declaring war in the heavens, yeah. seeing Satan cast down, no more adversary, no more Satan, but he's coming back for the physical nations on the earth. David won the war. Jesus will win the war. Solomon typifies the kingdom after all of the war into the millennial reign when yeah. we have everything finally completely yeah. set right. That's good. In 1 Kings 4, 12, Solomon seats 12, say 12, 12, 12. district governors. Ooh, come on. Think about Revelation. Think about what is promised in Matthew 19, 28 to the disciples. 1 Kings 6, the temple is completed. Revelation 21, the temple is on earth, complete. Yeah. First Kings 9, nations stream <laughs> to his wisdom. It's in Revelation 22. Saints, this is our best image of what is to come. And God designed it that way. And the reason he did not let David build it is because it was supposed to be represented by his son, Shalom. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Yes. While you're contemplating that, we want to draw to your focus one thing from verse 3. You know that because of the wars waged against my father, David, from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. Mm -hmm. See, 
This concept is not only something that Paul understood, it is his working base. We're now going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 together. And when I say that, I don't mean a specific verse. I mean we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 together. Ooh, Are you ready to look at the Bible in a new way and actually understand the plan of God? Say, I want to know. I want to be assessed. I was learning today. I promise you will. <laughs> Tune in and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 with us. You did your homework. Now, this is going to be a lot of fun. We are going to do a chapter within a chapter. It's almost like one of those movies where there's a dream within a dream or something like that. We're going to see 1 Corinthians 15 in the light of 1 Chronicles 22. You're going to begin to understand the gospel in a whole new way. Who is excited about the gospel? Yes. Man, we've got some things we need to learn about. Who wants to learn more about the gospel? It's the thing that you were saved by, and it's the thing you're sent to proclaim. So we need to know it, don't we? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to shed some light on what we call the gospel. Saints, as we transition there, we go long. We go into great detail. We do all kinds of stuff. But I promise it's not going to be boring. Do you want revelation? Let me just go ahead and tease you a little bit. (laughs) If I gave you an actual assessment right now, individually, and said, hey, explain to me the gospel, I am nearly confident that 98% in this room would be embarrassed of your assessment, and yet you're 100% sure you know the gospel. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you to hear us all the way through here. Come on. Okay, and I mean that holistically. Yeah. Okay, this is not new to me. This, this is, is uh, something I've been building on for 30 years. And it's <laughs> embarrassing how plainly Paul puts this and we still don't get it. Ooh. And it's because we cut it short. So I'm asking you not to tune out at any point during the entire 15th chapter because you think you know the gospel, and you don't. Thank you. All right, so let's begin in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. (laughs) Paul takes this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he takes the time in this letter to explain to you the gospel. He's saying, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So right here in the first verse, you get the understanding that Paul is going to lay out the entire gospel throughout the chapter. And it's not just a few verses in this chapter. He is going to continue throughout the entire chapter, not just the first few verses. We often look at the first few. When I got born again, I listened to a lot of Baptist teaching. And they use the first few verses of this chapter to explain what the gospel is because Paul says it, right? And they stop short. And I never understood what the real gospel is because I never read the entire chapter as one. So let's pick up into verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So how important is this? You have to hold to this chapter of the Bible, otherwise you believed in vain. Man, we better stay awake tonight, right? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, that's interesting in that, that that causes a lot of things to run through our mind. We're like, well, where did you receive it? The light from heaven? Uh, All these other things? Ananias? Barnabas? Well, If you study further, this is a Jewish 
liturgical phrase mm. that is used in the Pirkei Avot. This was employed to convey importance and seriousness to the listener. And to show you that, I'm going to read to you the very first chapter and very first verse of the Pirkei Avot, which Paul had at his disposal at the time. It begins like this. Just listen. Moses received the Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. Paul is saying is what I've received. I have received it and now I'm transferring it to you just like ethics of our father in heaven. You need to listen. Hey, it's, it's important to understand the weight of the phrase that he's using. He expects his hearers who are the whole Corinthian church to take what he's about to say as seriously as Joshua took Moses teaching from Sinai as serious as the elders took Joshua's teaching as serious as the men of the great assembly took the teachers before them in other words what he's going to lay out he fully expected them to the, to know to the point of memorization and the the problem that you're going to face is several times in the chapter you're going to be, oh yeah, I got it, that's the gospel. And the chapter's not over. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the problem that you'll face. It starts right here. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is where everybody stops. Yeah. Yeah. That's the gospel. Not only is that not the gospel, that would be like seeing the opening of Star Wars and assuming that all nine trilogies are now complete. Wow. This, this is the anchoring of the story, but the gospel is all of the implications that come from this. And they're important and they're massive. The gospel is not that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. I know that that would have been the answer that we got from 99% in the room, but that is not what Paul taught the gospel was. Let's keep reading. And that he appeared to Peter, and then the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I get why people don't understand this. After saying that Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he wants you to know that more than 500 people saw him. He was physical. He was real. He's alluding to the glorified body, which he's going on to talk about, and he needs you to know. It's not just that Jesus was crucified and that Jesus was resurrected. There is a physical glorified body that we are all witnesses of and that's where his train of thought is going he is emphasizing the physical nature of the resurrection verse 7 then he appeared to James then to all of the apostles and last of all he also appeared to me as to one abnormally born for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. He's still not done. He's affirming the first one-tenth of what he has to say. And he's letting you know that every one of the men of God that were a herald witnessed Jesus physically glorified because that's what he's going to talk about. This is the introduction. He is not done with his explanation. He is focusing on the primary goal of the gospel, which is the resurrection of the believers. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 12 reading. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not, uh, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ cannot be raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Yeah. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want you to get something. When giving the gospel, it does not end with Christ's resurrection. Because Christ's resurrection is only the first fruits of the entire harvest. The gospel is about mankind receiving this resurrection. Christ was the proof that you would raise. And he goes so far as to say, if you don't understand this, then all who have come before us are lost. Yep. The goal was not to go to heaven. It was not to believe on Jesus and go to heaven. It was not to acknowledge that Jesus was Lord. It was so much more than that. It was that Jesus Christ would be the first glorified human and he would cause all who trusted him to do the same. Amen. And we're still not done. The gospel of God has to include the goal of God for all mankind. And he's still enumerating it. And we're going to show you where he got it from. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What? But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. This is every bit as important to the gospel story as the crucifixion of Jesus. The point of the crucifixion and resurrection was that you would rise like him. Amen. Not that he rose and you believe it so you go to heaven. Yeah. It was that you rise from the dead. Amen. Now you need to pay very careful attention to the next four verses. Because Paul got them from understanding what we are teaching in Chronicles and Kings tonight. And it, it outlines for you the gospel that he preached. You're going to get to see not only where he got it, but how he preached it and the effect that it has on the world. Wow. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, Amen. authority, and power. Yeah. 
for he must reign until he has put all his yeah. enemies yeah. under his feet. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Where did you hear that phrase? That's exactly how Solomon described David's reign. The end cannot come until every enemy is put under Jesus' feet. Don't you think that's an important part of the gospel? That's important. Yeah. And we are still not done. Wow. Amen. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. David made everything subject to God's kingdom so that Shlomo could reign in perfect shalom. Yeah. Here, Jesus is seen as doing exactly the same thing. The gospel must include the believer's resurrection and a mandate for perfect shalom in heaven and on earth, which become one, the same thing. We're still not done. He's going to emphasize the nature of the resurrected body. He's going to tell us how to get victory. This is the gospel that he preached. It had nothing to do with believing on Jesus, dying and going to heaven. It did not look like most gospel presentations. It was the story of mankind's resurrection Amen. in Christ and spiritual dominance over all. Amen. You can be in church 30 years Whoa. and never have actually heard the gospel Paul preached. Wow. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those uh, do who are baptized for the dead? Hmm. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Does anybody recognize that phrasing? Yes. If there is no resurrection of every believer, then we might as well be like the people in Noah's day. We would still be under judgment. God's plan would have failed, and he would not have humankind ruling with him, which has been his goal from day one. How could we leave that out of a gospel presentation? Wow. Look at verse 33, and you'll find out how. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Wow. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop <laughs> sinning. Uh. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I wonder what he would write to today's community. Yeah. Oh, Not understanding that the resurrection of the dead is for mankind is a shameful ignorance in the body of Christ. And it is the result of sinful shortcutting of the gospel. He's going to continue to lay out the gospel and he answers questions while he does it. But he is still laying out the gospel. You'll know when we get to the end because he's going to tell you so. Amen. But someone may ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? 
How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another. And fish another. There are also heavenly bodies. And there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon another. And the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. This ought to remind you of Genesis 15 which is where we get the biblical concept of credited righteousness, the same place where Abraham's descendants were promised to be like stars. The gospel starts at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but it must move on towards the glorification of the human race, or it's not the gospel. Watch how clear this gets. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Part of the gospel, maybe the singular most important part of the gospel, is that when believers are raised, they are imperishable. They are glorious and they are powerful. Why is that important? Because it's necessary since they will rule with God, having displaced all other powers. Come on. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares that all believers will be what and as Jesus is. That is the gospel. To leave this out of the gospel is to render it impotent. You end up being saved to what? To what purpose? For what? It's meaningless. And the reason that we have so many Christians that are meaningless is they were never enlisted into the actual gospel. They believe some right tenets and have no idea why it's important. Worse, it makes most of the Bible irrelevant. See, the Bible is a contiguous revelation where all parts are important. Shortcutting this robs you of that. Now, we still haven't finished. He's going to tell you when we finish. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The last trumpet is called last for a reason. It marks the completion of God's judgment and the glorification of humankind as co-rulers with Christ. This is not just eschatology. This is the gospel. And it's important that we know what we're being saved to and for and called to do. Look at verse 53. For the perishable must, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Didn't Paul say earlier that the last enemy to be put down is death? Yes. Didn't Paul say that after that God would be all in all? Yes. How could we preach a gospel that does not include the victory and God reigning in all and through all? Wow. Paul clearly says this is what victory looks like. Are you telling me that we preach a victoryless gospel? No. Well, the gospel is that Jesus died and that he rose again. No, that doesn't include the victory. It doesn't even tell us the story. It tells you nothing of your destiny. The gospel is the good news of God for mankind, for you, for your rule, for your reign. But it gets better. We're still not done. (laughs) Verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us. What? Us. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There. What is it there for? Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The reason he says therefore is he has now finished his gospel presentation and he expects you to take a stand on it. It wasn't the first three verses. It wasn't the first ten verses as everybody says. It's the chapter. It goes all the way from the death and the resurrection to the victory. Your victory. It's not just his victory. It's victory for you. What would you be saved into if we don't have victory over death? What would you be saved into if you don't become like him? What would you be saved into if there's no purpose? You end up with these ridiculous ideas like we'll just worship forever. So good. It's dumb. It's nursery rhymes. It's the kind of thing that you shouldn't teach a child, but it would at least be excusable because they're a child. We cannot boil the gospel down to that. The gospel requires you to stand firm on this whole story. The gospel tells you not to be moved from this whole story. The gospel requires you to give yourself fully to this story. Laboring in a different story is to be laboring in vain. Or worse, if Galatians 1 is to be preached, could result in condemnation. Now, I I, I just have to to do this before we move on. I'm not talking about some kind of academic thing here. I'm talking about if if we are confidently preaching something that doesn't tell this story, then it is vanity. Can you imagine that to tell this story takes more than an elevator interaction? 
That's why actual biblical evangelism is about establishing relationships that last a lifetime. Not one night stands with people. Because it takes a while for somebody to be able to grasp what we're sharing. How long has it taken you? So all relationships have to start somewhere on day one. But the goal is not to shove three sentences in somebody's pocket and never see them again. The goal is to win disciples so that you can teach this story, their part in it, and they become competent to teach others. That's what our church is about. It's not that we intend to demean anything else. It's that we know what works over decades rather than makes us feel good for a few minutes. Okay? Trust me, I've handed out more tracts than probably anybody in the room. And there can be some good that comes from it. If that leads you into a relationship with that person that you could teach this chapter to over time. The gospel story has to result in victory over death for all followers of Jesus in glorified bodies. It has to. Co-rulership with God or it's not the gospel. How many times have we heard gospel presentations that do not anywhere approach this, but instead shortcut the whole thing and say, well, all you have to do is believe, and then when you die, you'll go to heaven. That is an abomination. Okay, I've done it. Probably most of you have done it. The Lord loves us. But the honest assessment is it's inadequate and we have to grow past it. Think of what you just learned. If you're going to receive a body just like Jesus, that means you have to walk just like Jesus walked. If you're going to receive a body just like (laughs) Jesus, if you're going to receive a position, a function just like Jesus, that means you have to walk the way Jesus walks. This is not something done in a Bible crusade. This is not something that you can just do in a 20-minute conversation outlining a few scriptures. This is something that requires a daily walk, being discipled and perfected, so that when you are perfected, ultimately, you receive a body like Jesus. Do you think that people are just going to believe a few things, live a sinful life after that, and then magically receive a body just like Jesus did? No, they're going to have to learn how to trust their father, even to the point of crucifixion, and say, not my will, but his will be done. That is gospel discipleship. It's why every promise in the book of Revelation is to those who overcome. They are the ones that rule the nations. They are the ones that are given the morning star. They are the ones that sit on the throne with him as he sits on the throne with his father. That is gospel story. We need to pick up the real imperishable truth of the gospel. All right, saints. Somebody say it's worth it. It's It's worth it. it. That was worth getting and understanding. Yes. To recap, a couple of the things that we are growing in our awareness of. Our relationships are familial. So your witnessing is familial, like a father and a son walking side by side with assessments, with the scripture, learning how to walk. And we are going to present the whole truth of the gospel. Everybody say amen. 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 Saints, as we move forward in Chronicles, I want to remind you, David's role was to put every enemy underfoot, just like we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Solomon's role was to typify the kingdom of God on earth, like the millennial reign. 
David is like Jesus from the crucifixion to the wine press. And Solomon is like Jesus from the establishment of the kingdom on earth into the eternal reign. Think about two comings here. Saints, these guys were good at their job. One was really good at killing. One was really good at managing money. But they represent a much larger global picture that the New Testament writers, when they are describing how Christ will come, they look at Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. It's important to us, if that's how Paul came to the revelation, that we understand it. Yes. We're going to pick up in verse 10 together. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. How long? Forever. Forever. Now, when we hear that forever, that clues us into a few things. We want to give you a summary of the eight promises regarding the Davidic son. The first one, a son shall be born to David. The second, he shall be a man of rest. The third, I will give him rest from all his enemies all around him. How's that going to happen? David's going to have to open up a can, if you will. His name shall be Shlomo. I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. Come on. This has to happen because of what David does at the wine press. I will give peace and quietness unto Israel. Number six, he shall build a house for my name. That's referenced in 1 Chronicles 22.10. He shall be to me a son, and I will be his father. And this is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews 1, 5 through 7. But there is one prediction, and that's unfulfilled. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. That is not fulfilled in today's Israel. In today's Israel, we see a prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, calling the shots. We do not see a son of David reigning on the throne forever. If you'd like to study that further, you can read 1 Chronicles 22.10, Isaiah 9, 6-7, Luke 1, 32-33, Acts 15, 13-18, Revelation 11, 15, and Revelation 20, 1-10. You guys got it? Amen. Let's move on to verse 11 and read through 12. Now, my son, the Lord be with you. And may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God, as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel. Yes, Lord. So that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Saints, this is the best advice from a father that could (laughs) possibly be given. Not only does he provide materials, not only does he provide Gentiles that are appointed to do the work, but he gives him advice that is life-saving. May the Lord give you discretion. Saints, in your own time, look up this up in an interlinear. This word is wisdom, but it's in the form that is being actively used. Ask the Lord for wisdom is what he says. So we have a father who says, all right, this is my son that the Lord has chosen. He's been named Peace. He's spoken about him as beloved. He's young and inexperienced. Let me start getting some of the materials for him. Sometimes it's hard to find reliable workers. So he brings in 70,000. But the best piece of advice that a father could possibly give, he says, ask the Lord for wisdom. Let's go to, well, I'll read it to you. We're going to read 1 Kings 3. Five through nine. You're going to find out that Solomon takes his father's advice and puts it to good use. Praise God. 
at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want. Come on, saints. You know the way the story plays out. But if God asked you that, what would jump to your mind? Hey, I need $50,000 for my business to be able to finish this. Or would it be, I want this pool in the back. Or I want to be, I want to be a great preacher. I want to be a man of God. Solomon heeds his father's advice. We're looking at you, single man. You're not getting away. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Alright, it's my brief, brief time to go off topic now that my brother's had. You pastor kids, you kids that are growing up in the church who have parents that are sitting in this room being discipled. Your ability to disregard what you've been given, waste it, and bring condemnation on yourself is a serious liability. That's true. When you take the advice that you have been given, seek the Lord for it to be applied, you too can become a man of faithfulness. But your father being loved by God and you walking in wickedness will see you damned and his name tarnished. I'm not just speaking about sons. I'm speaking about daughters in this house that are hoping, waiting, looking to behave however they would like when there is no supervision. Your walk with the Lord must be applied just like Solomon. Now, O Lord God, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning, discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern your great people? Saints, again in recap, David provided the plans for the temple He provided the materials for the temple. He provided laborers. But the best thing that David or you fathers in the room could ever do is teach your son what to ask God for. Come on. Solomon was the wisest man on earth because he listened to his father who had a heart after God. Sounds like he wasn't too offended with his father's assessment either since he repeats it to God as the basis for asking for wisdom. Amazing things happen when you're humble enough to accept an assessment. God might cure it for you. He might even make you the wisest man on earth. Or you can make yourself the dumbest man in the room by refusing to listen. Hey, let's do Proverbs 14, 26. Gabe, read it. Unless somebody beats Gabe there. Come on, who's going to get it? The fear of Jehovah is strong for us, and his children have a place of refuge. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and his children it will be a refuge for. Uh, The best thing that we can do is teach our children how to interact with the Lord. Parents, you need to give your children accurate assessments. To get an accurate assessment, you got to take off your parent goggles. Amen. Everybody else ought not see your children more honestly than you do. That's a good word. Okay. That's not loving to them. Yeah. Uh, 
It's not loving to look at your children in a glorified light yet. Yeah. They're not glorified. Nope. Uh, all of us can be fooled from time to time, but you should never be fooled. Yes. You're responsible for their souls. So I've been talking about receiving a personal assessment. The hardest thing to receive as a parent is an honest assessment of somebody in your care. Yep. Yeah. And if you can't receive it, then you're a bad parent. Yeah. Okay. You should welcome it. If somebody catches your kid being a little devil and you defend them, oh my God. What you really need to do is thank that person for helping you to see what you should have seen and yes. did not see because your child's soul is at stake. Yes. I'm talking about their social media posts. I'm talking about the music they listen to. I'm talking about the way they deal with their siblings when you're not in the room. Trust me, you want an honest assessment. Yes. You, you need an honest assessment. The Bible is full of parents who didn't see their children rightly, but God did and held the parent responsible. Man, that'll make you fall on your face and ask for wisdom, won't it? Yeah. yeah. Let's pick up in verse 13 and read down through 14. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid of discouragement. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron, too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. <laughs> You can hear David's uh, anxiety here a little bit. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord. Don't waste it, my son. Don't waste it. That's like some of you before a mission's trip. The good thing is, is that David taught his son the right heart to have. What David taught his son is the most important thing that we could teach our children. How to have a heart that seeks after God. Yeah. Your children are going to inherit all kinds of things from you. They're going to receive, you know, they might receive some money. Well, I don't know. They might receive a house. But the most important thing that they need is how to interact with God. True that. Yeah. It's already clear our children are not perfect right now. But you want to know how they get right with God? By interacting in the same way that we interacted with God. Yeah. How many of us came to the Lord perfect? How many of us had to cry out from a broken state asking the Lord for mercy? The best thing that we can pass on to our children is how to have a heart after God and how to cry out to Him. We're going to connect this concept for you one more time. They won't learn that if you don't give them an honest assessment. Solomon got his father's assessment and he took it to the Lord who fixed it for him. I know you want to speak in faith about your kids. I know you want to see them wonderfully. You need to see them as they are. And you need to speak with them about how they are. Amen. Then maybe when they're being pastored one day, they won't be offended when they get an honest assessment wow. from a pastor. Because they've been pastored by their parents. Amen. Here we have David entrusting to his son 100,000 talents of gold. Man, we did the math, and that's like $10 billion worth. Whoa, least. That is a serious investment that he's giving to his sons. Goodness. A serious investment. He's not just giving his son something that doesn't cost him nothing. He's giving his son the spoils of his victories. That is what he's passing on. 
That reminded us of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And you got to ask, how could he trust his son Solomon to handle all that? It's because he discipled his son rightly. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Here David is providing for the foundation and someone else is going to build it, his son. And he is providing something that cost David a lot. He took great pains to get it. Man, what have you taken? What have you gone through great pains to get into the kingdom that you're going to pass on to your sons? Come on. And someone else is going to build that foundation, your sons and daughters. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, the gospel. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because your sons will have to build with it. Our sons will have to build with what we provide for them. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So if the foundation you lay, if the pains you take to provide for your sons and daughters, your disciples, wealth to build the temple, if that lasts, what you provide, if that lasts, you will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Listen, the foundation you lay will be built on by your sons and your disciples. Whatever or however well it was laid, whatever foundation you have, whatever materials you have, whatever revelation you pass on, your sons are going to build on it, whether it was good or whether it was bad. Your work will be shown by what is built upon it by your sons. If we lay a faulty foundation for our children, how much will it cost them in the future? How many things will our children have to work out? How many times will they have to reinspect the foundation to see things that we laid incorrectly? I hope none. That is why we are here tonight. Amen. To get our foundation right. Yeah. To go through great pains to provide things for our children that are costly. Hey, let's pick back up in verse 15. Uh, 14. 14. I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron, too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And you may add to them. (laughs) And you may add to them. (laughs) This brings to mind all kind of passages, and it's getting late, so I want to summarize a few of them for you. If we could put Matthew 13.52 on the screen. Matthew 13.52 speaks about a teacher Uh, of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. We ought to pass treasures to our children that will be old treasures to them. They've heard them all their lives. I'm sincerely hopeful that there's a new understanding of Corinthians 15 now that every child in here will know. And then they will add to them new treasures. Amen. Man, that's, that's yeah. a blessing. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be like. Amen. John 14, uh, verse 12, literally says that we'll do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That is adding to the treasure that you were given. 
the whole point here is that a father laid out for his son the plans for the temple, the provision for the temple. He even told him how to get the right kind of heart to rule the people. A proper assessment of what he needed allowed him to get it. A denial of your assessment doesn't allow you to grow. Mm -hmm. And what would be the point then of coming here week after week? I mean, this is life changing ministry. I'm growing every day. Some of it's from mistakes I make. Some of it's life giving words you get. I mean, growth is not always pleasant. Sometimes there are growing pains. Do you remember when you were a kid and your knees hurt because you were growing? I mean, in the kingdom, your whole body hurts because you're growing. But you're growing. We're growing up into our head who is Christ. We're understanding more of our responsibilities. Let's pick up in verse 15. You have many workmen, stone cutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work, in gold and silver, bronze and iron craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. He said to them, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has, has he not granted you rest on every side? For he has handed the inhabitants of the land over to me, and the land is subject to the Lord and to his people. All right, saints. There's no way for us to avoid this correlation. He commands all of the leaders, authorities, powers, everything is to be subject to his son Solomon. And then... Every enemy has been put under his feet, for he has handed the inhabitants of the land over to me, and the land is subject to the Father and to his people. Do y'all hear it? This is a description of the king's rule being all in all. How can you not correlate this with the gospel story in Corinthians 15? You are seeing that Paul is writing Corinthians 15 out of Chronicles. That's incredible. Saints, we can clearly see that David has secured victory and that he's handing this kingdom, this victory, over to his son, that God is establishing a reign. But the part that I don't want you to miss from Corinthians or from this, to the Lord and to his people. See, we are given the same authority over the land with Christ in Chronicles as well as in Corinthians. This has always been the gospel story. This has always been the hope of those of us that are sons of God. That we might rule and reign along with this Prince of Peace. Linton, take a look. Let's pick back up in verse 19. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord, your God. Begin to build the sanctuary of the Lord, God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the sacred articles belonging to God into the temple that will be built for the name of the Lord. This is really special. We go through this chapter and you see that everything becomes subject to David and then he hands it over. And then God is all, he is all in all through what David does and then hands over those victories and everything is subject to the Lord. The last part of this chapter forecasts Solomon seeing the perishable tabernacle of Moses. Do you see that in the last verse? The perishable tabernacle of Moses putting on the imperishable Mm. temple built by the son of David. It ends the chapter with the perishable tabernacle being placed inside the imperishable temple. You have 15 seconds for a jewel? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Please. 
If the tabernacle of Moses is the perishable and Solomon's temple is the imperishable, what was between those two things? David's fallen. Do you mean that we are like rebuilding David's fallen tent? We are perishable with something imperishable inside of us, but the building from God is about to come and consume it all? It's almost like the apostle understood these things. Yeah. Saints, we will all be clothed with immortality. You need to grasp that tonight. You're all going to be clothed with immortality. Now, we are still building and working. Yeah. We are still building and working to get to the permanent temple. We are David's men. We are the ones at the cave of Adullam, and we are working towards the permanent building. Amen. David's charge to his son was to seek God's heart and begin to build. Amen. Seeking God's heart is not enough unless you start to begin building. David had a heart after the Lord, and he got his hands bloody. Wow. He got his hands bloody. He shed blood so that his son Solomon didn't have to. Come on. Jesus got his hands and feet bloody so that you can start building the temple. Amen. Jesus did the work. Jesus conquered the enemies. He became bloodied so that you can build. The question tonight is, sons, what areas do you need to build up the kingdom in your life? What areas do you need to build up? Also to fathers, what areas do you need to get your hands bloody and sacrifice so that your sons can start to build? Yeah. What areas in our life do we need to lay down at the altar so that as sons we can start building, so that we can stop everything else in our life that doesn't matter and begin to build what we want to see, the imperishable? Yeah. Fathers in the room, show me your hands. Don't you? Your hands should be stained with the blood of the things you do not want your children to have to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Lust, True. sin, immorality, an offense in your own life. Yeah. It's time that as fathers we get our hands bloody with the things that our children should not have to fight. Yeah. Yeah. The things that we allow to live in our kingdom, in our house, in our life, is things we are dooming our children to fight with. Saints, I don't want my sons to fight with the things that I have. Yeah, I would man. like them to be free to go on and build the kingdom Amen. of God. Yeah. Have you allowed an area of your life to remain as an adversary for your children and you need to get your hands bloody tonight? Yeah. Saints, we don't have the luxury of waiting around and just keeping it as a friend. What you do not put to death and get your hands bloody in the work, your children will deal with. Yeah. But saints, every enemy that you put underfoot that you get your hands bloody in the fight is one less that you know your children don't have to deal Amen. with. You are able to grant them victory even this evening. You're able to show them how to live and put those enemies to death so that you might have a son like Solomon. What kind of father do you want to be? How do you want to be remembered in the eyes of your father and your sons? I want to be remembered as a warrior, one who stood for the Lord and was willing to get bloody to the point that it gave me a different function, but I at least put my children on a better foot. Yeah. What do you long for this evening? I long for you to have hands that are bloody as fathers and as sons in the kingdom of this house to be those that are both building and putting to death for the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. We're all fathers and we're all sons and it's inextricably linked in the way that we must relate together. But you will not have the kingdom of God on earth without getting your hands bloody as a warrior. You must do both. Contemplate in your mind how you would like to do that. We are at our close. 
938. It's not terribly long for a foundations, but it's one of our longer ones. I hope you found it worth it. Hallelujah. <laughs> the very few enemies that David made some kind of covenant not to kill, even though he knew he should, Solomon had to. He wasn't supposed to have to, but he did. And even in David's mistakes, it works out to be a picture of the millennial reign. When we're glorified with Jesus, we're still putting down the leftover enemies. God's grace will work in your life, and we're not saying that it won't. We're simply saying that it's not really grace if you count on it. We're going to close with Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, 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 in light of everything that you know now, therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of your high calling, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Did you really think that we were going to preach about Rephaim and demonic powers and that we weren't going to have to struggle? <laughs> Last few weeks have been hard, hard yeah. on us physically. Hard. I know they have you too. You know why? You've become dangerous to the enemy. That's right. Amen. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Yeah. Always. Somebody say always. Always. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You cannot nurse things that you shouldn't have and be giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Several times a day I find a reason to be upset with something. But I have a hard time doing that and doing the, the full work of the Lord. I want to always give myself fully to the work of the Lord. Yes, Amen. Because you know that your labor in the Lord, that's a key phrase, not your labor, your labor in the Lord. Not doing what the Lord said to do because you wanted to do something else. It's labor. But it's not labor in the Lord. Doing something and kind of hoping it's the Lord is not labor in the Lord. We need to get before him and know what he wants. He gave us a body to help us with that. No matter how many times I repent publicly, it never fails to upset somebody. Even though I'm the one repenting. There has been 27 years of labor. And the things that I know that the Lord, it was labor for the Lord, are mostly hanging on our walls. All the dead space in between, that's the labor that I just thought I'd try. I thought I'd do something. It was labor, but it wasn't really labor in the Lord. And so there's not much to show for it. Our proudest labor is on your behalf. And we want your crowning achievements to be the relationships that you have established with people through discipleship. We continue to hear about what a hero somebody was a decade ago preaching on another continent, but there's not one person from that event standing with them today. There's not enough standing in here with us today. But we plan to finish with all of you. And we want you to have disciples. We want you to have these relationships. That's what the kingdom's about. It's not a sales context. This is what the kingdom's about.
Now you've heard from Judah and Justin. As a son, the things you need to consider. As fathers, the things you need to consider. I want to put it all under the umbrella of we are going to be swallowed up by imperishable bodies. We don't want have to be embarrassed of our lack of fruitfulness this side of that event. Your fruitfulness is not measured in activity. It's measured in faithful loyalness to God's actual plan. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Even becoming like him and attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You guys want to do that together? Amen. Let's stand up and pray. Saints, when we first met together between the churches, the thing that was printed on your shirts, it was more than just an axiom, it was the honest truth. Few in number, but one in purpose. There may not be enough of us in here, but we are standing next to each other. Yes. And we are family. Yeah. It's time that we pick up our sword and we pick up our hammer. Yeah. God gave us two hands. We have weapons of righteousness that should be in the right and the left. We have no time, no room for one hand doing something meaningless. It's time that we're putting things to death and building together. But he called us to do it together by his own design. And he gave us brothers who will do it shoulder to shoulder. Moving from here, we want to learn to invite honest assessment. Where we're not just waiting for it to be upon us, but we're treating each other as the family that we need to be. Rising up into the head that is Christ as one body. I need Rick Laughlin. I need Daniel Cho. Tell you the truth, you need those men as well. There's not one of us in here that is expendable. But we all must become all that we are called to be. For our brother's sake, if nothing else. Because our desire is as one community, as one man, one body, we might see Christ actually reign upon the earth. For now, I'll settle for everywhere we put our feet. That he has total dominion, total dominance. As a household, pray with us for just a moment. Cry out for your own homes. Cry out for your brothers. Cry out for the people that you are around. Mighty King, 